we were in, uh, um, oh, I don't know where, Timbuktu, somewhere. We were in a beautiful hotel, and I went down to the coffee shop and was looking longingly at a croissant or something, and I suddenly looked down at the end of the counter, and um, there was a man sitting with a magazine open, and he was openly crying. I kind of got off my stool, and I kind of went over kind of behind him and looked around there. And as he turned the page, I saw the Andrew sisters' pictures. I put my hand on his shoulder, and I said, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I said, but I see what you're reading. He said, I was in the war, and this story is just heartbreaking. And I said, you know that it's uh, Maxine Andrews. He said, oh, yes, I'm a big Andrews sisters fan. And the next thing I do is take him up to Maxine's suite. Well, they just fell into each other's arms and cried. This is The Current Rewind, the podcast putting music's unsung stories on the map. I'm Andrea Swenson. Here's a question for you. After Prince, who is the best-selling musical artist in Minnesota history? No, it's not Bob Dylan. It's not Owl City either. If you're still wondering, maybe this will help. He was a famous trumpet man from our Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was a top man at his craft. But then his number came up and he was gone with a draft. He's in the army now, a blowing reveille. He's a boogie boogie bugle boy of Company B. They made him blow a bugle for his uncle Sam. Patty, Maxine, and Laverne Andrews, the Andrews sisters, were, aside from Prince, the biggest Minnesota musical act ever. From the late 1930s to the early 50s, they were said to have sold over 100 million records. That number's hard to nail down because not all record companies kept reliable sales records or shared them publicly until about the 70s. But we can say for sure that the Andrews sisters had 46 top 10 hits and a dozen number ones. But the Andrews sisters were more than just a bunch of gold records. They provided the United States with a soundtrack to World War II and in doing so became icons of the 1940s. They have this tremendous energy and they have this great sound. You hear them and you instantly know what decade we're talking about and and what the country was like. That's Gary Giddens, a jazz critic and Bing Crosby biographer. He knows a lot about the Andrews sisters because they work closely with Crosby. So we'll be hearing from him again. But much like the Andrews sisters themselves, this episode of The Current Rewind holds three main voices. One is Maxine Andrews herself from a 1982 interview with the late writer and radio host Studs Terkel. Another is Tom Rockfam of Mound, Minnesota, the small town known as the sisters' heart home. In addition to collecting the group's memorabilia, Tom became friends with Patty late in her life. And finally, we spoke with Linda Wells, Maxine's manager, adopted daughter, and this may be a surprise to even longtime Andrews Sisters fans, her lover and companion. Before Patty, Maxine, and Laverne became the Andrews Sisters, they were the daughters of immigrants Peter and Olga Andrews, who operated pool halls and a Greek restaurant near the Orpheum Theater in downtown Minneapolis. Linda Wells, Maxine Andrews' longtime companion, fills us in on their background. The Norwegian and the Greek. What an odd combination. Papa came over with a 
Greek boxer. I think he was a boxer. And they were from the same area of Greece. And so Mama came over as an infant with her family. They immigrated from, from Norway. And, um, and they moved to Minneapolis for whatever reason I don't know, except, of course, there's a lot of Scandinavian. And so uh, maybe they like the cold. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know now. But, but the other thing is, now, why would Papa, being from Greece, pick a city uh, that was that was cold as it could be <laughs> in the winter? It, it, just, it always puzzled Maxine, like, wow, because he didn't come over with any family. I knew he was from Argos, Greece. I knew that he, when he was a kid, he dived for uh, sponges. Uh, he was working in a very fancy ice cream um, factory in Minneapolis, and so was Mama's brother. She took her brother a, a, a clean shirt. He had to go somewhere after work, so she went by to drop off a, a shirt for her brother, and somehow or other, uh, Peter and Olga was her name, and, and she was called Ollie. Uh, her, their eyes met, and I don't know, from across uh, the centuries, they, they created the Andrews sisters. Laverne was um, born in 1911. Maxine was born in 19, what did I say before, 16. Yep. Patty in 1918. Uh, there was a little girl born between Laverne and Maxine. And her name was Angeline. She was a bit over a year, and she died of some pulmonary problem. The Andrews family moved often as the girls grew up. According to their birth certificates, each of the four daughters were actually born at a different Minneapolis home. Two of those homes, Maxine's and Patty's birthplaces, still stand in Elliott Park, which is a quickly gentrifying neighborhood near downtown Minneapolis. The other two were demolished in 1969 and 1970 due to the big urban renewal program that swept through all of Minneapolis, but especially hit the north side. Near North, the Andrews sisters' former neighborhood, has been associated with Jewish, immigrant, and black communities for over a century, and it struggled with image and inequality for just as long. The address where the Andrews would spend the most time was 1600 Lindale Avenue North. That house was built in the 1800s. The Andrews lived in their unit for over a decade, but they were long gone by 1950 when the building was hoisted up and moved to make way for a Studebaker dealership. That commercial building was demolished in 1974, and as for the multi-unit itself, that has also been torn down. Now the Lindale plot that once held their home lies in the middle of Hall Park, a small playground across the street from an elementary school. Old homes and fast food dominate the surrounding area. But like most parks in Minneapolis, Hall is clean and colorful, speckled with blue swings and benches. A footbridge rises over Lindale, a major street in Minneapolis, to connect the halves of the park. Minneapolis wasn't the only formative city in Minnesota for the Andrews sisters. They spent their summers by Lake Minnetonka, one of Minnesota's biggest and best-known lakes, in a small village called Mound. 
The producer of this podcast, Cecilia Johnson, and I were really curious to learn more about Mound and the sisters' time there. So we set up a visit with a Mound VIP, a man who's lived in town all his life, who loved the Andrews sisters ever since he was a little kid, and who's become the town's unofficial Andrews sisters archivist and historian. His name is Tom Rockvam, and we actually got him out of retirement to give us a special tour of the West Tonka History Museum, a cozy space nestled in the top floors of the Mound City Hall. Most of the artifacts on display in the museum are either related to the Andrews Sisters, the Tonka Toy Company, or the history of Native people in the area, from prehistoric inhabitants to the Dakota people who were living there when white settlers arrived. Cecilia and I both found Tom to be super charming, and his love for the Andrews sisters was obvious. In his endeavor to learn more about the group, he became friends with Patty Andrews in the final years of her life. And when she passed away, she left some of her memorabilia to him in her will. This is a piano that came out of the Andrews sisters' house. Oh, wow. And it's got a long story behind it. A party that was related to them, but they were they were from a very poor family. Their their uncles, Pete and Ed Soley, that's two of them there. They owned a grocery store in Mound, and so they uh, were selling the piano in a garage sale. Pete and Ed Soley bought that from from that family mm-hmm. for fifteen dollars, and then it just disappeared. You know, it was in the Andrew sisters' house until that was gone. Pete and Ed Sully, they had the grocery store. When they moved out here in 1910, they rented a house up in the Highlands. And after that, then they stayed a year, and they were, the whole Andrews family was ice cream. They worked at a company called uh, Hiawatha Ice Cream Company. And they, their main business was selling bulk ice cream to the tourist boats on Lake Minnetonka. Tourist was huge here from uh, late uh, 1880 through 1920. And then in 1920, the tourism went away. Henry Ford made automobiles that he could sell and supply and finance so people don't have to go, didn't have to go where the tracks went anymore. Everybody in Mound knew Pete and Ed Soley. Sure, yeah. You know, it was just common. You even knew them to the point where you wouldn't buy anything in the grocery store because it had been in there for 14 years. You know? <laughs> and I said that to Patty one day. She called me. She said, I'm sure every one of those cans and stuff are green inside, she said. So we have first-generation immigrant children um, wanting to sing, uh, Laverne being the instigator of... Uh, of starting them to sing together, and Laverne being so incredible. She was the only one of the three who could read music. And she heard the Basel sisters and thought that she had two little sisters. <laughs> Darn, they could do that. And, and I don't think she thought ahead that there was going to be a career for them. The Andrews sisters began performing around the Twin Cities. A crucial break came in 1931 when they placed first at a talent contest at Minneapolis's Orpheum Theater. Soon after, they joined Larry Rich's Traveling Road Show. It was the final days of vaudeville, traveling entertainment reviews featuring a variety of acts from stage playlets to dancers to trained animals and, of course, singers. Patty Andrews told Tom Rockvam about those days. 
And she told me that when they were, when they were really starting out in vaudeville, it was just terrible because she said all vaudeville served was it was a place where people went just and they didn't care who they stepped on to get up another notch. And she said, I wouldn't suggest vaudeville to my worst enemy. Vaudeville was fading by the time the Andrews sisters came aboard. Critic and author Gary Giddens talks about what made them unique. The Andrews sisters sort of revived a tradition in American entertainment that was uh, over the top in the 20s. They were just dozens and dozens of uh, sister acts. Most of them weren't particularly good. The great one that we all remember is the Boswell sisters. They were very hip. They were very uh, jazz-influenced. They devised their own harmonies, their own way of singing, and they worked with some of the best musicians of that period. But so many of these sister acts in the vaudeville era and afterwards were just, you know, pretty young things in uh, pleated dresses and that kind of thing, calico. Um, And so that faded. People got really sick and tired of that. And then the Andrews sisters came along, and they had a unique sound, a kind of a very bright harmonic uh, sense. By me, Mr. Shane, please let me explain. In 1937, the sisters signed to Decca Records in New York. Their first single, Why Talk About Love, didn't do much. But their second one would change the sisters' fortunes, as Maxine Andrews told historian and radio host Studs Terkel in a 1982 interview. When Decca signed us, we, had, um, we were getting $50 a record. And uh, By Mir was our second record. In those days, the records had an A side and a B side. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Cap, who was the president and founder of Decca Records, called one day and said to us that, uh, he said, I've got a hit song for you, and I want you to get up on it right away. And it's from a movie uh, called Wake Up and Live. Mm. And he said, the name of the song is Nice Work If You Can Get It, and I want you to go out and get up on it, but immediately. But we didn't have a B-side. That was going to be the A-side. We didn't have a B-side. So we looked around and looked around and looked around, and finally a young man who eventually became our manager said uh, he had a a song that if there was an English lyric, he thought that maybe it would be a wonderful song if we did a nightclub act in New York because it was a Jewish melody, Mm -hmm. or I think he said it was a Yiddish melody, and he said it was like a lullaby, and he said when you work in New York with the big Jewish population, you'll be a big smash. But there weren't any English lyrics, so he taught us by Mir Bistu Shane in Yiddish, phonetically. And we walked into the studio, we did nice work if you can get it, and then we did by Mir Bistu Shane. Now sitting in the, in the, in the studio was Sammy Kahn and Saul Chaplin. And um, Yes, the songwriters. So Jack was so impressed with the song, he walked over to Sammy and said, can you write an English lyric to it? And... Uh, Sammy said, yes, that was the end of the date. We came back two days later and re-recorded it. And that was it. And that was By Mir. Yeah. After By Mir, we had seven smash hits in a row. And uh, Mr. Cap called our parents in and tore up our $50 a record contract mm. and gave us a new contract with royalties and went back retroactive. Though it was a simple love song, By Mir Bis Duchesne carried lots of weight, as Linda Wells told us. It broke for a hit in early 1938, just as the Jews were being incarcerated everywhere. 
And so that's why almost everyone thought the girls were Jewish. And, oh, they, they loved that. They claimed it. They loved it. The hits kept on coming. In 1940, the Andrews sisters recorded Beat Me, Daddy, Ate to the Bar, a song that, as Gary Giddens pointed out, helped popularize a brand new beat. Boogie Woogie had been a fairly arcane musical style practiced uh, in, mostly in uh, black communities by some several brilliant uh, virtuoso pianists who could really get a rhythm going, people like Meadlux Lewis and Albert Ammons. The A to the Bar was very propulsive, so it, it encouraged dancing and at rent parties and that kind of thing. A to the Bar, Boogie Woogie uh, would just you know penetrate all the conversation and the talk and, and really keep people dancing. But at, after the Andrew sisters did it and other groups started doing pieces with Boogie Woogie, it became a national fad and uh, a kind of alternative uh, rhythm to the 4-4 of swing. The Andrew sisters played uh, an enormous uh, part in that popularity. In 1939, the Andrews sisters made their first recording with fellow DECA artist Bing Crosby. Patty told Tom Rockvam about collaborating with him. Every song they sang with Bing Crosby was a million song, Rick. And I liked the way she said, you're going to sing with Bing. And she said you could tell immediately what kind of mood he was in, because she said if he was in a good mood, he'd have a brim of his hat turned up. And if it was down, look out, because we're going to do this right the first time, and that's it. But that was, he evidently liked them, because everything clicked with the two of them together. I think they're at the best with Crosby, because they're trying to impress him. Gary Giddens has written two parts of an exhaustive, multi-volume Bing Crosby biography. He explains how the Andrews sisters linked up with the white Christmas icon. I believe it was Dave Cap, the brother of Jack Cap, who ran DECA. And Dave became uh, sort of legendary for creating their country western uh, catalog, which was the, the best in the business for many years. And I believe it was his idea to have, a, to have them do uh, you know, a two-sided 78 with Crosby. When uh, Bing and the Andrews sisters got together, uh, one of the, the first records that they did was Pistol Pack and Mama. And, I mean, one of their funniest recordings definitely is Jingle Bells, uh, which we think now of as a Christmas holiday uh, song, and which they did even in the 40s, but was actually written uh, in the 1850s as a Thanksgiving song. The, the Jingle Bells are about, you know, groups coming together in their, in their carriages to celebrate Thanksgiving together. And... Uh, and, you know, another one that's, that's I, actually I would rate very high among Bing's very best recordings and certainly the Andrews sisters' very best was Louis Jordan's Is You Is or Is You Ain't My Baby. They spread country music to a larger audience. They spread rhythm and blues to a larger audience. People weren't even thinking of them, of them in terms of ethnicity because once you reach the level of the Andrews sisters or Crosby or Sinatra or any of these mainstream white performers who were all over the air, the music followed them into the mainstream. With their records consistent bestsellers, the next stop for the Andrews sisters was Hollywood. 
a lot of the the swing stars, uh, swing bands, people who became famous on radio, uh, would be used to attract audiences to the movies. The Andrews sisters, they really hit it off when they started appearing in in service comedies like Abbott and Costello. Those started coming out right before Pearl, the year before Pearl Harbor, when everybody sort of suspected we were going to end up in this war no matter what. But uh, when they made these movies right before Pearl Harbor, the army... And the training camps in this country are portrayed as like summer camps, you know. It's so much fun that you get free cigarettes and routine visits from the Andrews sisters. And it's all comedy and and, uh, nobody's killed or in any kind of jeopardy in these in those kinds of movies and so they right after the war they did a very uh, uh popular film with uh, uh bing and uh, bob hope in the road series uh the road to uh, rio uh and they're very good in that they're they're really it's probably their best film but they they weren't actors and they were a specialty act the andrews sisters popularity meant that they were consistently on the road They were in Cincinnati in December 1941 when President Roosevelt made an announcement. Maxine told Studs Terkel the story. I remember very distinctly the day that the war was declared because we were in Cincinnati, Ohio. We were, we'd opened there on a Thursday and it was a big, big snowstorm. But it looked like we were going to break the house record in the theater didn't matter how cold it was or how high the snow was. People were lined up for blocks. And I'd get the thrill of walking over to the theater at 9 o'clock in the morning and seeing the lines were already mm. formed. And um, that went on for Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Now, Sunday morning was the same routine with me. I got up and I went over to the theater and there were no lines. And I thought, well, now this is funny. So I walked into the theater and as usual, remember the old theaters had the doorman. Well, the doorman wasn't there. So I walked onto the stage, which was very dark, and in the distance I heard people speaking, but I couldn't distinguish what they were saying. So I walked further on the stage, and they, there were the doormen and stagehands were sitting around. They just had one light, and the radio was on. They were talking about Pearl Harbor being bombed, and I remember going over to the doorman saying, where is Pearl Harbor? I had never heard of it. And then I heard the president declare war on Japan. I, I, I don't know if I could ever tell you what I felt. I don't even know if I could describe it myself, but it was just really devastating. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. The Andrews sisters became a crucial part of the war effort, performing for the troops at USO shows around the world. Tom Rockfam recalls the Andrews sisters' impact on the home front. When I grew up, all there was on the radio, there were no televisions, of course. <clears throat> the radio and it was on 24 hours a day, and it was all news. The only time it broke was news about World War II. And the only time that changed was the six or eight times a day that the Andrew sisters sang. And that was just such a relief to hear music. And I was only four or five years old when it ended. World War II, but I drastically remember, no matter where you went, if you were home, you had a radio on, and it was always the news, always news. And if you went to, to see a movie, it was always in the preludes or whatever of the movie. But I remember my, my mom, when, when that, and her sisters would come on during the day while she was in the house, whatever, 
she would just dance around. It was, and I thought, in my own mind, that had to be a re relief, that three minutes or five minutes of relief that you could think of. Otherwise, it was constant roar, roar, roar. And that's, to me, the irony of three girls from immigrant families who became iconic uh, representations of one of the worst times in the history of America, uh, in the history of the world, World War II, and who became a beacon, a light that all of these men and women who were fighting uh, for freedom, they are iconic. You look at them saluting in their uniforms from, from a, a film, and, and you're just transported back to a time in which um, Maxine's quote, it was as if everyone in the, in the United States was holding each other's hands. The Andrews sisters were playing a USO show in Italy in 1945 when some big news came in, as Maxine told Studs Terkel. We got into a Jeep and we went out to this, uh, this place in, in, in Naples, and it was like a big, well, where you'd put a dirigible, I guess. Mm -hmm. That's how large it was. Mm -hmm. And it was loaded with about five or 8,000 of the most unhappy-looking audience you'd ever seen because all of these fellas were being shipped to the South Pacific. And they hadn't been home in four years. And it was just their bad luck that they were all ticketed to go on to the South Pacific. Not only were they, you know, on the floor of this of this big place in chairs, but they were hanging from the rafters. Uh, when we were pretty well, well through with the show, I heard somebody go, pss, 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 and I looked around, and it was one of the soldiers, and he was calling me off stage. So Patty was doing a little scene with Arthur Treacher. And uh, I walked over to this man, and he said to me, he said, I have a very important message for Patty to tell the audience. And I looked at him, and I started to laugh, because the fellows were always playing tricks on us. Mm. And so I said, well, I can't do that in the middle of the show. And he said, no, he said, the CO, this is from the CO, and he said, it's very important. So I said, well, I, I can't do that. And he said, look, I'm t you're going to get in trouble, and you're going to get me in trouble. So I took the piece of paper. I didn't read it. And I walked out on the stage, and I, I kept saying to myself, is he kidding me? It's going to be terrible because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to get in trouble with Patty or I'm going to get in trouble with Arthur or I'm going to get in trouble with the CEO. So I decided, well, I'd walk on the stage and I would wait until I felt it was a proper opening. So after Patty and, and Arthur finished their skit, we got together and Patty was in a very jovial mood that day. And so we were kidding around and finally I said to her, Patty, I've got a message for you. And she looked at me and I said, it's a message from the CEO. And she said to me, stop, your kidding. And I said, I'm not kidding. I got the message and I was told to give it to you and it's from the CEO. So she said to me on the side, she said, Maggie, she said, you know how the fellas are always kidding us. She said, I can't do that here. We got to finish the show. And I said, but he insisted that it was very important. So I gave her the note. And so she said, well, I'll go along with a gag. So she said to the fellas, look, it's a big joke up here. I'm going to read you a note from supposedly from the CEO without Reading it first, she read it, and it announced the end of the war with Japan. Holy Christ. There wasn't a sound in the whole auditorium. So she looked at it again, and she looked at me, and she, she knew that I knew that it was serious. 
And so she said, no, fellas. She said, this is from the CEO. And this is announcement that the war is over in Japan. You don't have to go. That's a fact. And with that, she started to cry. When she started to cry, Laverne and I started to cry. And there was still no reaction from the guys. So she said again. They expect to go to the South Pacific. That they were getting, oh, they were all ready to be shipped out. And she said again, she said, no, this is, this is it. This is the end. Well, all of a sudden, all hell broke loose. And they yelled and screamed. And all of a sudden, we saw a pair of pants and a shirt come down from up above. <laughs> and following it was a body <laughs> came down and fell on the guys sitting there in their, in their chairs. So Patty said, look, you want to go out, everybody go out and get drunk. Or do you want to see the show? And they said, no, 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 we want to see the rest of the show. So we made it very short. With the war over, America could relax. The Andrews sisters were as busy as ever. But according to Tom Rockfam, every July, they'd return to Mound for vacation. They came back until 1960. Both their uncles were passed away by 64, 1964. Before that, they came back, no matter where they were performing in the world, to come back for a week or two. And they always stayed with them in their house, which is where the Gillespie Center is today. Mound, Minnesota, lies on the western side of Lake Minnetonka, about 20 miles from Minneapolis, and it covers three and a half square miles. Dakota natives considered it a sacred space, but white settlers colonized the area starting in 1852, and it became a tourist hotspot by the 1890s. To this day, people from near and far visit its golf courses, hotels, lake cruises, and recreational trails. Named after the Native American earthworks all over its topography, Mound Village was incorporated in 1912 and became the city of Mound in 1974. Much of the town was developed and its streets paved in the 1970s. When the Andrews sisters were kids, the town had a population of about 400. Since 1980, it's held steady at about 9,000. I'm wondering, um, in talking to Patty about being in Mound, I get the sense that maybe this was a place where they could step away from the spotlight and have a little bit of a break from the... It could be, because uh, basically she always told me, you know, whatever they did was mean in the later years, they had just come here just because they wanted to be alone. In the early 50s, the sisters were beginning to move apart. Their mother Olga had died in July of 1948. Their father Peter passed in October of 49. Then a fire in 1951 destroyed the family home in Bel Air. In 1952, Patty married the group's pianist, Walter Weschler, and the Andrews sisters would disband just two years later. He was like a fourth Andrews sister because he was a piano player from day one. He had an axe to grind for some reason, and he broke it up for a couple times as he thought he should get a fourth of the money coming in. And it was always split in three. And the week after he died, they piped PA music through that house for a month. He very controlling, he was, you know. But uh, there's a lot of friction in there. You know, and I never went into that, I never, I didn't want to do anything that I make me lose Patty. Patty, uh, she was a soloist, and on all the recordings, whenever there's a solo female voice, it's Patty. And uh, 
she got married to a guy who had uh, more ambition than he had talent or brains and convinced her that uh, the sisters were holding her back and she could be a great star in her own right. So she left uh, them high and dry. Uh, this was after they had made, I don't know, close to two dozen gold records. There was a, they were hugely popular. And so the Andrews sisters ended, and, and of course, Patty Andrews had a, a, an utterly negligible career as a soloist. Uh, Crosby tried to help her by doing recording a couple of duets with her, but she wasn't good enough to, to go solo, whereas the Andrews really had a unique sound. And to sacrifice that for being a, you know, a second-rate uh, uh, female voice at that time when you had so many really, really great voices from, you know, Sarah Vaughan and Ella Fitzgerald and Peggy Lee and Rosemary Clooney and, I mean, just on and on and on. These were really distinctive performers. She didn't have that. The Andrews sisters reformed in 1956 and continued recording for almost 10 more years. But by that point, rock and roll had replaced big band as the leading sound of pop. Soon after Laverne passed away in 1967, the group disbanded. Then, in 1973, Bette Midler's cover of Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy went top ten, and the Andrews sisters were back in vogue. Maxine would join Patty in the cast of Over Here, a Broadway show that opened in March of 1974. But before the show could tour nationally, as Gary Giddens says, the two sisters had a falling out. I remember when uh, they got together for a reunion at the bottom line in the 70s, and as a consequence, there was a Broadway show that was uh, sort of built around them with you know young performers pretending to be them. Maxine was in it. She sort of was a special guest who would come out. They, they might have been able to navigate a transition into the 50s. A lot of 40s acts simply couldn't do it. But as it happened, um, they really are associated with that period. They had a good 15 years out there at the top. Maxine, who was the liveliest uh, of the three personally, I mean, she was really a pistol. She came out as gay, and uh, Patty was homophobic and never forgave her, and they never really talked again for the rest of their lives. This particular revelation came as a surprise to the whole team behind this episode. So I want to pause here and talk a little bit to our producer, Cecilia Johnson. Cecilia, hello. Hello. Okay, so we just learned through this interview with Gary Giddens that Maxine was gay. Is this something that you had come across at all in your research up until this point? Not at all. So it was really surprising, and I was almost like, is this true? Yeah. It turns out that he wasn't exactly right about the cause of Maxine and Patty's split, from what I could tell through research and interviews that had more to do with Patty's husband, who was apparently pretty controlling and not necessarily a nice guy. Um, But he was totally right about Maxine not being straight. She was married to a man. She was partnered with a woman for 13 years. And then she was partnered with Linda Wells, who was also her manager and later adopted daughter um, for many, many years. So what did you want to do next once you found this out? The first thing I did was Google Maxine Andrews Gay (laughs) because I'm a great researcher. (laughs) Yeah, so I did turn up some 
not what I would call like, you know, scholarly or like well vetted sources. But I did come across a couple of forums where folks were just saying, yeah, like she definitely was gay. And in these Google searches, I came across the name Linda Wells. So I turned to this book that I really, really, really respect about the Andrew sisters. It's by Harry Nimmo, and it's called The Andrew Sisters, A Biography and Career Record. And I looked in the index for Linda Wells. Finally, I got to page like 401, I think it was, (laughs) (laughs) of this big old book. Harry Nimmo addressed these rumors. It turns out that in the 90s, there was a Globe story and a National Enquirer story. In the 1990s? In the 1990s, the early 1990s. I think it was like 91, 92 when those stories came out. That was the only kind of published sources that he could find about this. He wasn't able to get in touch with Linda. So I thought maybe I could get in touch with Linda. Yeah. I did find her online. So I called her up. She just happened to answer. Um, the first time you called? The first time I called. Amazing. I was so nervous. And I said, hi, I'm making this podcast. We're doing an episode about the Andrew sisters. And she told me anything for my girls. Oh, there's this kind of big elephant in the room, right? This hasn't been part of their story. This hasn't been like widely discussed. Like, How did you broach this topic with Linda? I was not sure what to do. So I actually called Harry Nimmo and asked for his advice. He said, if I were you, I think I would be really candid. And if you just approach it honestly, then she'd probably at least be honest with you and not be offended. So then when I actually got on the phone with Linda for our actual interview, we got 10 minutes into our conversation and I finally worked up the courage to ask her. <laughs> you know, I I feel like I should be really candid. I've been reading some stories and statements that Maxine was gay too, and I'm not sure how much you want to talk about that, if at all. And uh, if you were me, you know, I'm, how would you I'm writing it? a book at this moment. I've got a wonderful writer who is uh, is also gay and is coming on board for this project. We're also doing a documentary at this time, and it is all about Maxine's life. Maxine was married to Lou Levy, who remained her lifelong, uh, well, they were divorced, but her lifelong a uh, friend, and and uh, I, I adored Lou Levy, uh, and he became one of the five largest music publishers in the world. And they adopted two children, a, a little girl and a little boy. She had never had a female lover um, until one person, and this was after her divorce, and they were together for 13 years, and that was very successful, very good. And when that finished, that was the end of Maxine thinking she was gay. Huh. You see, it's, it's, it's a different era. And she really did not consider herself uh, a lesbian. And then, uh, then she and I, as adults, um, something clicked. Yep. One night at a place called Charlie's in, in New York, and she was doing the Broadway show by that time. And it, it was just one of those moments in time when you go, uh, that is the person I want to spend the rest of my life with. And it, it was just, it was just a, a chemistry. So it, it, to me, it, being gay was not a central focus of Maxine's life at all. Her art was, her mm-hmm. singing was, her, her ability to please an audience, her devilish 
uh, way of uh, uh, of getting into a an audience and making them feel as if they were sitting in her living room, if, even if there were 3,000 people in the audience. We both became born-again Christians, and it happened because we had some dear, dear friends named Carol Hampton and Jim Hampton. Jen, Jim Hampton was a wonderful actor. Carol Hampton was from England and had one of the most gorgeous voices, jazz voices. She lives out here now, and she had tried to make a CD, a DVD, for me to be able to see Maxine on one of the Christian television stations. And uh, yesterday, uh, my secretary was able to get it to run, and I saw Maxine singing, and it was just divine. And it was on a Christian <laughs> television station. Talk about being in the in the closet. Carol, up until five years ago, did maybe six years ago, did not know that Maxine and I were gay or lovers or any of it, but accepted us just for who we were, just as human beings. But she was the one who, after Maxine had her major heart attack at Northwestern Hospital in Chicago and darn near died, and they thought I was her daughter and had to sign all these rights, you know, all of these things for them to do these medical procedures to save her life. Um, and I had no authority to do that. Mm. We, we didn't have a living will at that time. We, I mean, she hadn't been sick. And uh, so Carol Hampton just took me and Maxine by the hand, <laughs> took us out on the street where, where they lived and knocked on the door of a neighbor and said, and it was, a woman answered the door and it was an attorney friend of hers. And she said, this one needs to adopt this one. <laughs> we had several friends who had adopted each other, um, but it never occurred to us, really, that we needed to do such a thing. It just didn't occur to us. Within three weeks, I was her daughter, which made life a very strange kind of... Also, that's a bit odd, if you think about it. And yet, it it doesn't change the relationship, because she and my mother were almost the same age, and I had a perfectly good mother, and yet I had another mother. <laughs> but there's a part of me that's proud that we had to jump through those hoops because it's important for those kids today that are struggling with their identities and want to be who they really are to know that it wasn't always right out in the open or it couldn't be. It literally could not be. It was against the law in many, many states, and believe it or not, it's still against the law in states that have not changed that law. Maxine and I were life partners, and the only legal course we had was for to adopt me. There was no such thing as being married at that time. And during her lifetime, there was no such thing that existed for us. So the the militant, and I mean that in the kindest and best words, the ones who wouldn't put up with nonsense are the ones who marched and made this happen, that that people who are gay can come out of their closet and, and, and wave their gay flag. Here's the most astonishing part of all. Linda and Maxine had crossed paths many times before falling in love. It's a, it's a long story. Uh, she was actually a friend of my mother and my father and before they were famous. And they met in Memphis, Tennessee, at the Peabody Hotel when the girls were singing with a band. And my parents lived in a small town in Arkansas called Helena. 
they had gone up to Memphis to stay at the at the Peabody, which was the hotel, mm-hmm. you know. And they were staying for three days, and the and the girls were singing every night. So every night there would be my parents, and the girls would sing, and people would dance. You know, that was also that sort of thing where they danced, and Maxine would come over and join their table between breaks. So then they stayed in touch all the way through, and you can imagine the. I was nowhere in the vicinity at the time mm-hmm. because that was in nineteen. 19- 36, maybe, maybe really early 37. And then um, my father then was in the Army Air Corps. He was training boys uh, to fly, and he had, he, was a pri- he had his own plane. He was flying, of course, ordnance from, from the uh, Air Corps at that time, and he was up doing some practice runs, fortunately without a student. And the plane crashed. My uncle was playing with the Navy band and was actually doing a USO show in, I think, Texas, somewhere in Texas, probably Dallas. And he told Maxine, he said, I believe you might know my my sister and my brother-in-law. And she said, well, of course. I re- yes. And how is their daughter? And he said, well, there's a whole story there, too. But I did need you to know that Arthur was killed in service. My mother got a phone call from Maxine, and this is all in my baby book. They stayed in touch then, they stayed in touch, and I did not meet her in my mind, officially. Um, my grandmother tells me that she took me down when I was little to um, New Orleans. I really don't have a memory of that, um, to he- hear them sing. And then my first real memory of her was when I was 13 years old, and my grandmother and my aunt was my father's uh, mother and his sister, uh, took me on a road trip to California. And my grandmother called Maxine, and she invited us to have lunch at the Brown Derby in Hollywood. It was wonderful. Wow. <laughs> and I was not impressed at all that this was one of the Andrews sisters. It wasn't really registering with me at all but in in uh, there uh, were were some of the most famous people um of their time and they were even be, before my time but I still knew who they were and Maxine was pointing out who who was sitting there there was a, a singer by the name of Johnny Desmond there was a comedy team by the name of um, uh, Fibber McGee and Molly uh in the other room Nat King Cole there was an old movie star who was part of a star in the in the um, before the talkies, you know, in the silent films, named Mae Murray, and I just remember that that the uh, the Mater D gave me full full permission to go and get everybody's autograph, which really didn't happen. But a thirteen year old with Maxine got by with murder. I did not then get to meet her again until I was already doing a lot of commercials in New York. I went into the business. I graduated from the Goodman Theater in Chicago and uh, decided that I I wanted to sing. I wanted to act. This is what I wanted to do with my life. And um, so I moved to New York with that intention, and I began getting commercials, a lot of commercials. And then uh, a friend from California was staying with Elaine Stritch, a very famous uh, actress, uh, singer, performer. And so uh, we met. She invited me to come out to visit her at her home in um, Studio City, California. 
And while I was there, it was Thanksgiving, and she had a Thanksgiving party. And who comes up the walk but Maxine Andrews? My my hostess was standing at the door looking at people getting ready to come up for a very long walk. And she said, oh, here comes Maxine Andrews. And I just about fainted and ran into another room and went, tried to collect myself and went, whoa, my goodness. And, and then I started to giggle thinking, oh, this is going to be fun. So I walked back out and Maxine was just greeting Pat at that time. And, and, I, uh, and I just stood there. And she looked at me and she said, well, hi, uh, how are you? And Pat said, uh, uh, Maxine, this is Linda Wells, and and Maxine said, "Why do you look so familiar to me?" And I said, "Well, I do a lot of television commercials. A lot of people think they know me." I said, "But you know, actually, uh, Maxine, you know me." <laughs> she went, "What?" I said, "You're my godmother." <laughs> what? My mother had she had said, "Can can you be a guardian angel for my little baby?" This was when that phone call happened back in 1943. And Maxine said, well, I don't know about being a guardian angel, but I'd be happy to be her godmother. When I stood there in that foyer that day and told her that if she had false teeth, they would have fallen out. And then she was just like, I can't believe it. So from that moment on, uh, we, we stayed in touch. We were just never apart after that. And Maxine and I would go to back to Minneapolis, and she also did several um, personal appearances there for corporations and things that would bring her in. And so we'd stay downtown at one of the hotels. I can't remember the name of it. But she had her favorite restaurants, and we would hit that, and we'd visit the family, and we'd go to Mound, which was – Mound was her heart home because that's where she she and the girls felt they could be kids. After a lifetime of music and public adoration, Maxine died in 1995 at the age of 79. Patty, the youngest sister, would live the longest, dying at age 94 in January of 2013. After her passing, Tom Rockvam pushed to get the sisters' official recognition from the town they loved. And everybody in Mao knew the Andrews sisters and the uncles and all that. But I got, I got the phone number, and it took me about two weeks to get up enough courage to call her after hearing weird stories and things. And so I called her, and uh, she answered the phone, and I said, Patty, my name is Tom Rockfam, but I said, which will mean absolutely nothing to you. But I said, I'm from Mound, Minnesota. And she just melted. And she said, Mound, Minnesota. I haven't talked to anybody from Mound for 60 years. Mm. What can I do for you? And she just came, it became so unreal that if I didn't call her every week, she called me. Patty Andrews had never had a service when she died. Patty thought She called me and she said, you know, we're going to get this group together and come up to your museum and look at that. And you've done so much for Mound for us and for Mound and keeping the Andrew sisters' name alive. So they had a service in the parking lot out here with the, the 21 gun salute and the whole thing. And every time I found a article in the newspaper or mm -hmm. in a magazine, I'd cut it out and put it in a box. I wrote a letter to our senior center, her Gillespie Center, mm -hmm. and said, you know, I think we should give these girls some recognition. 
And all I was thinking was, was a plaque of some kind or a sign? I remember passing that out at the board meeting and there was about, I would say, 12 people on that board. And I never heard back a word from any one of them. So I thought, well, I'm not going to fight them. But anyway, then I went out and I saw they were making a trail. You know, bulldozers and they had black top right downtown mound. And it isn't that big, it's probably a half mile total. It goes, you know, from the Catholic Church around town over to the Caribou Coffee. I thought, you know what? There's no signs here, nothing. And it's a lighted blacktop trail. Mm. So that's, and one of the councilmen said, you know, I talked to him. Great idea, he said. So he worked with me, Bob Brown was his name. And we got that, I got that going. The Andrews Sisters Trail was officially named in 2005. Patty, the surviving sister, delivered a final encore just for the occasion. Yeah, we uh, we've done about four, either four or five, dinner parties at Gillespie. That'll hold like 250 people, mm. and we sold it out every sold it out every time we did it. And on our, it was her 90th birthday. It was just a great night. I call Patty, and I'd always call her and say, "You're going to be home Saturday night," and she said, well, "Where else am I going to be? <laughs> I can't walk anymore." She said, "My knees are too bad." I said, "Well, like, we got a party, and I'd like to have you, you know, hook up. We'll hook it up and call you." So we sang "Happy Birthday" to her, and then she sang half of "Bugle Boy" back, back to the crowd. This episode of The Current Rewind was produced by Cecilia Johnson and Anna Weggel. Michelangelo Matos is our writer, Marisa Gonzalez-Morseth is our research assistant, and Brett Baldwin is our managing producer. Our theme music is Winging It by Laserbeak from the album Luther. Michael DeMarc mastered this episode. Thanks to guests Linda Wells, Tom Rockbam, and Gary Giddens, and to Harry Nimmo, who wrote the invaluable book The Andrews Sisters, a biography and career record. Gary Giddens has written two Bing Crosby volumes, and Tom Rockbam put together a great book called The Andrews Sisters and Their 100-Year Connection to Lake Minnetonka and Mound, Minnesota. Thanks to the Studs Turkle Archive and WFMT for granting permission to use recordings of Maxine Andrews. If you liked listening to The Current Rewind, we would love it if you would rate and review this podcast on iTunes, as well as subscribing and telling every single person that you know how cool it is. Go to thecurrent.org slash rewind to find transcripts and bonus materials. The Current Rewind is made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. It is a production of Minnesota Public Radio's The Current. The Current.